0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power parsha Today is Wednesday, January 12, 2022, but maybe, more importantly, uh, let me take away the maybe, but more importantly, today is the 10th day of Shvat, which is the anniversary, the day that the Rebbe took over or assumed the leadership of the chabad Lubavitch movement in 1951. His father-in-law, the previous Rebbe, passed away on this date in 1950. It was one year later that the Rebbe officially officially um, took over as the new chabad Rebbe. Although, for that whole year, people were kind of like, let's make it official. The Rebbe said, no, whatever, different reasons without getting into it. But it was, it was on the first anniversary, the first yard site, that the Rebbe officially... Um, Officially uh, became rebbe with his first discourse, Basilagani, which is all about the mission statement of mankind, the mission statement of the rebbe's leadership, and the era that the rebbe kind of uh, inaugurated in 1951. Then, which is all about making the world a beautiful place. The discourse is all about the fact that this world is God's garden, although we don't use we don't always see it as God's garden, and our job. Is to reveal the beauty of this garden and make it obvious for all, for ourselves and for everyone. In other words, there might be a garden, but it could be a little bit um, overrun, maybe with weeds. Like it's beautiful potential, like potentially it's beautiful, but in actuality, it's a little bit, a little bit um, neglected. Our job is to tend it, is to guard it, to plant it, to make it beautiful, and that's really the job of. Job of everyone, job of us, the job of this generation, and ultimately the culmination of that is Mashiach. So on this special day, it's appropriate, of course, to study Torah, which is what we're doing, to add in giving tzedakah, and in adding additional prayer. So Torah, tefillah, tzedakah, which is a bit of a different order than I said. Torah study, additional prayer, and additional tzedakah. Those are the three, the three pillars. Of our tradition and always good to enhance those on uh, on a very special day okay so let's jump in Have I
1: quick yes question? So, sure. so what i mean was there a vote is there an installation ceremony i mean how what's the mechanism?
0: you're you're asking the good questions so there wasn't a vote but there a form form of vote but there was enough of a of a movement that it was obvious um who should be the next Rebbe. And then number two, as far as the installation ceremony, yeah, basically the Rebbe had a formal Fabrengan, and at the Fabrengan said a Meimer, a chasidic discourse, which that is, that, that's only said by a Rebbe. So that was like, you know, the, uh, the official inauguration speech.
1: So that's an addition to the speech for all of mankind that you just mentioned.
0: Yeah, well, no, that was this, this message is part of what the Rebbe shared at his first discourse, or during, um, in his first discourse. So the first
1: discourse was also the mimer?
0: Yeah, that's the mimer. Discourse equals mimer. Mimer is discourse. Yeah.
1: Also, oh, every one of his discourses is a mimer.
0: Yeah, but he also has sichas, which are talks, less formal. So a mimer is like a very formal text. Um, when I say formal, it's hard to describe the difference. Um... Alright, we'll leave that for another time to describe the exact difference. Yeah, what well, we learn Sunday mornings are Maimurim or Mimers plural. Huh. We learn discourses on Sunday morning Kabbalah Coffee. Um Asicha is kind of what we do Wednesday nights in Torah studies. So a little bit of different style. Again, with it's hard it's hard to discern the style in an adaptation or in a translation, but in the original, it's a bit of a different uh also style. more
1: formal teaching rather kind Correct. of precedent.
0: Correct. It's formal, organized teaching, exactly. So until then, the Rebbe had fabrein and shared stories and whatever that first year. About his father-in-law, about, you know, whatever. But with the first mimer, there's also a special tune that's sung before the mimer. It's recited in a special way. So all of that formality, if you will, was done. That was was it.
1: So is it just the Brooklyn community that had the voice and... you know the consensus, or was it Chabad from around?
0: I mean, the- Chabad worldwide didn't exist much in 1951. Well, I mean, it existed actually. in Israel, and there was a lot of a lot of support in Israel. Um, Europe, not really. Was there much going on? And then, of course, America. The headquarters was New York. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just Brooklyn, but it was that was kind of the headquarters anyway. So, tefillah. You have to understand also. Back then, how many people were were in the shul? I mean, it's. I don't know the exact numbers, so I can't, I can't uh, say the exact numbers. There weren't that many. There weren't that many. We're talking a few hundred, maybe a thousand, maybe a little bit more, but not, not a lot.
1: So it's a small community.
0: Very small community. Yeah. Okay. So let's jump in. I'm going to share my screen. We are ready to go. And, oh, I was looking up a, an article here before we started. Why did all the pursuers die at the Red Sea? All right, you can look at it. It's a chabad.org. as I was getting to the, uh, to the page, I saw that. You see that right here? It's like the second little image. But we're not going to do that. We're going to go into the actual Torah reading for B'Shalach. So Torah portion is B'Shalach, the main feature of this week's Parsha is the splitting of the sea, which we read about yesterday. the sea split. A wall on the right side, a wall on the left side, dry land in the middle. Can you imagine the translucency of looking at the fish kind of through that glass wall? So, not exactly glass, but through the wall of water. Kind of cool. The Egyptians, of course, follow, which is, I I said yesterday, like reflecting on this, like what were they thinking? Like, this is a crazy miracle. What was the plan? What was the plan, Egyptians? Anyway, they, they ran in. To pursue the Jews, the water, it became muddy, it became hot. There was fire that burned the wheels of the chariots. And before long, everything was chaotic. All right, that was the end of the third reading, which we covered, as I I just said, which we covered yesterday. Right, he removed the wheels of the chariots, led them with heaviness. And Egypt said, let me run away from the Israelites because the Lord is fighting For them against the Egyptians. Basically, at that point, the Egyptians realized they were in way over their heads. Okay, fourth reading for Wednesday. Yod Shvat, 10th day of Shvat, here we go. Exodus chapter 14, verse 26. Thereupon, thereupon, the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea and let the water return upon the Egyptians. That's big, right? This is going to be the second time that Moses stretches forth his hand with the staff. But instead of splitting the sea, now the sea is going to collapse and cover over all of the Egyptians. Upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and toward morning, so this was now, remember, they, this, all of this chaos happened still in the night before daybreak. Now it's getting a little bit later. So now it's toward morning. The sea, what happened? The sea returned to its strength. That means the whole thing collapsed. And as the Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord stirred the Egyptians into the sea. The Lord stirred the Egyptians into the sea. So the sea collapses And here we have this notion of stirring, which means that they didn't just drown, but there was turbulence in the water. There was turbulence amongst the Egyptians. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. The entire force of Pharaoh coming after them into the sea, not even one of them survived. Let's take a look at some Rashis. So God said to Moses, let the water return, i.e. the water that is standing upright like a wall will return to its place and cover up the Egyptians. So Moses did this toward morning. Rashi says at the time the morning approaches, as it's turning to come, so to speak. Um, To its strength, to its original strength. The sea returned to its original force. As the Egyptians were fleeing toward it, what does that mean? Because they were confused and crazed and running toward the water. They actually wanted to run away from the water, but in the confusion, they ran further into the water. And the Lord stirred, Rashi says, as a person stirs a pot of food, listen to this, and turns what is on top, what is on on the top to the bottom, and what is on the bottom to the top. Imagine you are stirring a chalant or a soup, right? You take the ladle, you take whatever it is, and the stuff in the bottom you bring to the top, and the stuff in the top you bring to the bottom, you're, you're mixing it up. You're mixing it all up. So were the Egyptians. I mean, it's, it's, it's horrific. It's horrific. So were the Egyptians bobbing up and down and being smashed in the sea. Like I said a moment ago, they didn't just drown. They were being lifted up and down and up and down, like stirred, mixed into the sea. And the Holy One, blessed be He, kept them alive to bear their tortures. Again, this is, I mean, I said horrific. Rashi says torture. I I would put it in the same category. The idea that they would somehow be alive. Now, does this mean, perhaps, that God brought them to the surface where they could breathe only to bring them down again? Or just does it mean within the water they went up and down and still somehow remained alive? I don't know exactly. But clearly there is... Number one, an up and down action. And number two, being kept alive. It's possible that they were able to like, you know, climb up and climb up in the water or whatever, swim up or whatever it is to get, to get some breath. But then the, the, whatever waves or turbulence crashes back down and up and down and up and down. Okay. Let's continue. Um, no, all of these are grammatical Rashis. Let us... Pick it up. Okay, so we're done with the Rashis. At least the Rashis that...
1: Uh, Rabbi, how how are we to get a lesson of compassion from this?
0: Good, that's the article that I was reading before. Right. That's that's exactly why I was reading it. I was not convinced by the article, by the way. You can read the article but I wasn't like... uh, Basically, it calls upon what we said yesterday, that even the best of the Egyptians were deserving of death, basically. Because even the ones that believed in God, that... Put their animals inside indoors when the plague was going on they were the ones that sent their animals they were the ones that participated in the chasing of the jews which means that they were all guilty they're all guilty of not even by association they were all directly guilty guilty of persecuting the jews why no compassion again this is way beyond my pay grade i, I don't know
1: but god but god hardened their heart
0: right that adds to the question correct What about the hardening of the heart? You harden their hearts so they're stubborn, so they chase after you, and then you punish them with torture. So you have to say what we said a few weeks ago, that the hardening of the heart is not really going against their will, it's really helping them assert their true will. So a person might not go through with what they really want because they're scared. Remove the fear, and the person does what they want seems like these Egyptians, even the every man, every woman, every day, not every day, the, the average person. I don't mean that, you know, the, the every person of Egypt wanted, wanted the Jews enslaved. That's what they really wanted. They but only... I
1: mean, with, I'm sorry. The koshering animals is to give them the, the easiest death, right? The slaughter.
0: Correct. Correct. Right. I, I don't have a good answer. I don't have a good answer for this. The only thing I can think of is, I'm sure the commentaries point out, how this is mida k'neged mida, How this is a direct punishment for something they did to the Jews. I mean, they took Jewish babies and drowned them. Right? Let's not forget about that. They drowned Jewish boys, Israelite boys, in the Nile River. So maybe this was something they did as far as torture, not just drowning. Maybe they engaged in torture. It's possible. Again, I'm speculating now. I'm just saying that this is, this is different than slaughtering an animal in that that's not a punishment. That's for kosher, and there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a compassionate way to do it. This is a punishment. At this point, this is a punishment, right? There's lessons that were learned from the plagues. At this point, this is the final punishment. And the understanding, I think, is Mida keneged Mida, which means measure for measure. In the same way they measured out pain to the Jews, this was measuring, being measured back out to them. There's no way, I don't believe there's any way to sugarcoat this. I have the same questions. This is, I believe, the approach of the response to that. Is it going to be emotionally satisfying, especially from our vantage point 3,300 years later? Having not been persecuted in that way by the Egyptians, having not lived through it, could we relate to it? I would say no. Is it good that we can't relate to it? I would say yes. Yes. <laughs> I think it's a good thing that we can't relate to it. Is this a lesson for all time to take retribution and punishment? No. This ultimately comes down to God's plan and again, I'll say what I started with even though I threw in some other stuff but it's ultimately beyond our pay grade. At least beyond my pay grade. Um, yeah. I think it's a good thing that our first reaction is oof, that seems a little harsh. Right? Where's the... Compassion. Even in our country, when the capital, at least supposedly when capital punishment is applied, it's supposed to be in a not... It's not supposed to be cruel and unusual punishment. You know, there was an issue a few years ago, as I'm sure you know, with the lethal injection where it wasn't killing people right away, right? And they banned it in some states. Some states kept it anyway, whatever. But it's not about torturing the person. It's about, you know, if, if the... I'm not weighing in on this, you know, if it's applied correctly, et cetera. That's, that's another conversation. But even if the court decides capital punishment needs to be applied, our country says no cruel and unusual punishment. It's got to be quick and, and, and that's it. This seems to fi- fly in the face of that, which is, I think, where the question's coming from. I'm not answering the question right this second. I'm, I'm explaining, I'm, I'm kind of supporting the question. I guess the only way to, 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 to understand this on some level is to say that this was this is going to be measure for measure for something they did in such a torturous way to the children of Israel. That's the only way I can make sense of it, even if it's not emotionally. That's the framework of uh, perhaps understanding it or giving a space for it. Okay. Meanwhile, back on the Israelite side, verse 29. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. As we said before, not only was it in the middle of the sea, it was dry land. No mud, no fire, nothing. Garnished. Dry land. And the water was to them like a wall from their right and from their left. This is the second time that it mentions water like a wall. Water like a wall. Right side and left side. A wall signifies that the water you're walking through on the, on the ocean or the seabed, the floor of the sea. So the water doesn't just gradually taper off, taper down, but it's, it's the full height of the sea as, well, as a wall, which is a very cool visual. Verse 30, on that day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dying on the seashore. So this is powerful. It's a powerful line over here. And what it explains is how the story in essence comes full circle. This is where, you know, I said before, um, I think at the beginning of Monday session of DPP, you could take the Israelite out of Egypt, but it's hard to take the Egyptian or the Egypt out of the Israelite. This is kind of where that happens. Seeing their former captors, Dying, drowning on, in the sea, on the seashore, etc. And that, that, by the way, this implies Israel saw the Egyptians dying on the seashore, that the sea spit them out at some point, and they saw, they saw the bodies, they saw the, the deceased Egyptians. That itself does wonders for there being reconciliation. Otherwise, for the Jews, otherwise you're constantly looking over your shoulder. When, when are the Egyptians coming? Are they still going to get us? This is like the ultimate closure, if you will, and ending the story. Now, all of this, you know, the story that we're explaining right now is all the, the practical, physical um, part way to understand the story. Of course, there's metaphysical ways, spiritual and emotional ways of understanding the story. Um, but on a, on a practical level, this is closure. This is closure. And Israel saw the great hand, not literally, not literally a hand, but the great strength which the Lord had used upon the Egyptians. And the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in Moses, his servant. At this point, they believed not just in God. They feared God. They believed in God and in Moses, his servant. Why did they believe in Moses? First of all, what does that mean, they believed in Moses? At this point, they believed that what Moses was telling them was coming from God, was legit. Moses had said, keep on going, and the sea split. Moses said, keep on moving, and the sea collapsed, on the Egyptians. Moses had directed them, of course, in Egypt through the 10 plagues, had navigated that situation. At this point, they believed that Moses, God's servant, was legit, was a legit representative. This is uh, a powerful testament. Now... Will they turn on Moses in the future? Yeah. Will they fetch and complain? Sure. Sure, absolutely. But for the moment, they believed. And that's that's a good thing. All right, let's continue. Exodus, uh, actually, let's take a look at Rashi before we begin the next chapter here. Let's take a look at Rashi and see if we missed some good material. Okay, let's take a look. Israel saw the Egyptians dying on the seashore, Rashi says, as I mentioned to you before a moment ago, for the sea spewed them out on its shore so that the Israelites would not say just as we are coming up on this side of the sea, so are they coming up on another side far from us and they will pursue us. Lest the Jews believe that somehow the Egyptians got out from a different exit and are still going to chase the Jews, so God caused them to um, the the deceased Egyptians to emerge from the sea so that the Jews could see them and that they were gone. So again, I, the idea of closure, the idea of nothing to be afraid, at least physically, nothing to be afraid of anymore. The Egyptians are gone. That did wonders for uh, for this idea of closure. Another point that I want to mention, and this was in the map that, uh, Dina, that you shared, I want to say, two days ago, that wonderful map. I believe... It was depicted there. The Jews actually did not cross the sea. They went into the sea and came out on the same side they went in. They made a bit of a, a U-turn. So imagine, imagine here's the sea. Imagine I'm just gonna illustrate from here. Imagine going in and then coming right back out. I mean, maybe the circle is a little bit bigger than that, but it's not like they crossed the sea and went to the other side. They crossed and went back on dry land. Which reminds us as we've discussed before, that it wasn't about salvation. It wasn't about, you know, eliminating the Egyptians. God could have orchestrated any number of ways to do that, not through going into the sea and coming out, especially since it's not like they were needing to get to the other side and this was a convenient way to cross without a bridge. They literally went in and went back out. It seems like the sea splitting was a major piece of the conversation itself. And so for this, I'll share with you what it says in the Hasidic writings, that the splitting of the sea was not just punitive. It was a miracle of immense proportions. And the miracle was that which is hidden suddenly became obvious and revealed. So to explain this, I'm just going to take a quick step back and talk about the the mystical concept of sea and land and the difference between the two. What's the difference between the sea and the land? So the sea, our sages tell us, whatever exists, thank you. Whatever exists in on dry land exists in the sea. There are mountains, on dry land, there's mountains under the water. There's life on earth, there's life under the sea. There are There's foliage, trees and grass and vegetation that grows on the ground. It also grows in the sea. Pretty much everything exists in parallel under the sea. The difference is that one you can perceive with your eye and the other one looks hidden. You look out at the sea and you can't, pardon the the pun, you can't see anything. All you see is the sea. You see the water. Okay, yes, if if you... you know, get into a scuba diving uh, kit and jump in, yes, you can see under the sea. But otherwise, when you're standing on the shore, you can see a little bit, but pretty much whatever's there is hidden. This represents two different realities, the hidden realm and the apparent realm. There is the hidden realm. Hey, Mark. Good to see you. Hi. There's the hidden realm of divine... of, of divine... Um, Divine energy, and the hidden realm means that it's a spiritual realm that has all of the components, if you will, of our reality, but in a hidden way spirituality, godliness, divine energy, but hidden, not obvious to the eye. And then there's our obvious reality, which is this reality that we see with our eyes, and we see things, whether it's above the sea or below the sea, it's things that we see and perceive. But there's another reality, that's the sea reality where godliness is true, godliness is real, but it's a little bit beneath the surface. It's like behind the curtain, behind the facade of existence lies the truth of God and divine energy. What happened at the moment the sea was split on a spiritual level is that the sea, which represents the spiritual realm, opened up, and that became apparent to everyone. This was not just a traversing of the seabed for the Israelites and a collapsing of the water on top of the Egyptians. This was, this was much more than that. This was an opportunity to perceive and behold the greatest spiritual reality. Kind of like Revelation at Sinai, this was a momentary revelation at the sea. In fact, our sages tell us that even the greatest prophets that would emerge in Jewish history could not even touch one finger, or, I mean, I don't want to mix too many metaphors here, could not even replicate even 1% of what a simple Israelite saw at the sea. In other words, the spiritual revelation that they beheld at that that moment of the splitting of the sea was much more profound than even the greatest prophets who would ultimately live. You know, you have Samuel and Elijah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, the great Jewish prophets that would emerge in history. They never even, they couldn't even come close to what even a simple Jew saw during the splitting of the sea. It wasn't just a pragmatic thing of the water separating, dry land emerging, the Jews crossing, the Egyptians drowning. It wasn't just that type of pragmatic uh, experience it was a divine revelation of the highest sort. Only, only matched and, and surpassed by the revelation at Sinai. That's the only... And this was indeed a preparation, if you will, for the revelation at Sinai according to the mystical text. So this is a bit of a deeper way of understanding it. Now, why does that have to lead to, on a pr- practical level, the death of the Egyptians? I don't know. On that spiritual level. Maybe it means the spiritual element of Egypt drowns or dies in that revelation. Right? When we see the truth then our inner Egypt, our inner Pharaoh, right, all, like, automatically goes away in the face of such truth. It's kind of like, I mean, I said I don't know, and I'm, giving an, I'm offering an answer, so maybe I do have an idea of what this is. And that is that it's kind of like when we have an epiphany. We have a clarity of thought. We have suddenly a realization like, oh, wait, this is true, this is real. And all the stuff that's not so true and real, all right, not so true and real, it becomes... Superficial, not becomes, it's perceived as superficial. Anyway, I hope this makes sense.
1: Water also with the Egyptians maybe dying in it, there's some similarity to Noah's, you know, with the flood. The yeah. Cleansing.
0: I believe, I believe that it was on a, pra- on a pragmatic level, measure for measure, drowning the Jewish children in the, in the Nile River, the Egyptians drowning in the sea. I'm pretty sure that's the accepted um, path, which, which plays, and the reason why I'm saying that is it plays into what you're saying. Because the Egyptians believed that they could drown, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago, they could drown the Jewish babies with impunity because God had promised never again to bring a flood. So they said, right. "Will will murder, and said, we'll murder the babe, the Jewish babies in the water, and God can't take retribution. God can't punish with water. And God says, first of all, don't tell me what I can or cannot do, number one. Number two, number two, I only promise, says God, not to destroy the whole world with a flood. But a nation who chooses a path of evil with water, that, there's no rainbow for that. You know what I mean? There's no, uh, there was no covenant for that. No promise. Not reneging on anything.
1: So which, which, is there a particular mystical text where this concept is discussed?
0: Yeah, what I share with you comes from, um, one second, Torah Or. Um, It's from the Altar Rebbe, from the founder of Chabar. It's in his discourses that are um, on each of the Torah portions. So he has insights on the splitting of the sea. And that's all that I share with you about the Alma de Iskasya, Alma de the hidden realm, the revealed realm, the splitting of the sea is is the divine reality opening up and being obvious for all? To see. all that is from Torah. Um, oh, that's what Rabbi Shusterman teaches on on Shabbos morning, from that from that book. It's the oh, same so text.
1: Rebbe, to Rebbe's
0: discourses on the Torah, on the Torah portion. portion. Yeah, it's discourses that follow. There's um, every week. There's probably four, five, six, depending on the week different discourses on that. They were all compiled and published by his grandson. So these are discourses from the Alter Rebbe, published, organized, edited, and, publi- and published by his grandson based on his wishes. So the grandson kind of organized it according to the Torah portions because he, you know, over the years he had many discourses. He selected, edited, and published these, uh, these discourses. Okay. Let's jump back in. Oh, Mark asks, why does Rashi say all the waters of the world split? We talked about that yesterday. So that no one would doubt the Jewish story when the Jews said, would later say, hey, the sea split was a miracle. Everybody would be like, yeah, sure it did, right? Show us the, show us the video evidence. Like, oh, you don't have a cell phone. Sorry. No one took a selfie. Sorry, I don't believe you. This way, if everyone's water split at that moment, the same moment, Everybody's like, whoa, that's heavy. You're saying that your water split for the nation. You know what? We had a weird thing happen with the, uh, the pitcher of water on our table. It also just suddenly did some splitting. That's crazy. That of would course, be...
1: some people could say, what's the big deal? My water split too.
0: Oh, that's the opposite, right? Oh, your water split, my water split also. Eh, no big deal. Okay. True. All right, let's get back inside. I'm going to share my screen. Let's jump back in. Okay. We are at the chapter 15, verse number 1. Why can't I find it? Here it is. This is the song of the sea. In the Torah, it's written It's written in a very unique way. How is it written? Um, it's written as, I think it's written as three columns, almost. It's written like right, left, center, right, left, center, right, left, center, I believe. Or maybe it's just right and left with a, with like a division in the middle. Or maybe it's right and left with a division in the middle. You know what? Let's do this. One second. Let's find the picture. I always get confused with Hazino. One second, song. At the sea. Well, let the see. Hold on a Share. Ah, here we go. Oh yeah, yeah, I was right. It is three. I'm gonna pull this up for you. I'm gonna pull up a picture and then share it. Give me a second. That's too small. One sec. Once again, Chabad to the rescue. Here we go. All right, you guys see that? You see that middle column? So the right and the left columns are the normal way that a Torah is written. Kind of like solid blocks of text with a little bit of uh, line breaks once in a while. That middle column is the Song of the Sea that we're about to read. As you can see, all puns intended, there's right, left, center right left center right left center it would have been cool if it was just right and left with a gutter in the middle like the sea splitting but i guess maybe the middle is uh, the jews walking through you know like kind of that imagery you have like a separation and then marching marching in the middle this is the song of gratitude that the jews sing to god having experienced this miracle. They actually sang a song. They composed the song. Moses led them in singing a song of gratitude. Moses led the men. Miriam led the women. By the way, the difference is (coughs) Moses led the men just in voice. Miriam led the women with musical instruments, including tambourines and other things. The women always were the believers. The men... The women came with their tambourines. They were ready, they were ready to sing. They were ready to, ready for a miracle. The men, all right. Sometimes you got to tell them uh, what's going on. All right, Exodus chapter 15. Let's do this. So then Moses, Az By the way, we say this every morning in our prayers. We, sing, we say this song. I mean, we don't necessarily sing it, but it's in the liturgy, in the morning liturgy. Weekday, Shabbat, holiday, every single day of the year. We say this az Yasha, we say these verses that we're about to read. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord, and they spoke. So Moses and the children of Israel, that means that Moses led with the lyrics, and the children of Israel followed. There's actually a dispute in the Talmud as, as to how exactly the song played out, but we'll get to that in a second. And what did they say? What was the song saying? I will sing to the Lord, for very exalted is he. A horse and its rider he cast into the sea. Okay, that's, that's the extent of the rhyming here. But at least it rhymes for the opening, opening stanza. The eternal strength and his vengeance were my salvation. This is my God, and I will make him a habitation. Oh, wait, 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 wait. The, the rhyming is still going. The God of my father... And I will ascribe to him exaltation. Oof, look at this. Right? Uh, hold on. Guys, we got, we got rhyming. Exalted is he. He cast into the sea. Salvation, habitation, exaltation. All right, two verses so far and, and rhyming in the English. Well done. Whoever's doing the English here, kudos. Kudos. They made it happen. Despite all odds. All right, verse three. The Lord is a master of war. The Lord is his name. Okay, Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast into the sea. And the the elite of his officers sank in the Red Sea, or Sea of Reeds, Reed Sea. The depths covered them. They descended into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is most powerful. Your right hand, O Lord, crushes the foe. And with your great pride, you tear down those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning wrath. It devours them like straw. And with the breath of your nostrils, the waters were heaped up. The running water stood erect like a wall. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. Because my enemies said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will share the booty. My desire will be filled from them. I will draw my sword. My hand will impoverish them. That's what the Egyptians said. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead. And its powerful waters. I mean, you could see this is written poetically, just a recap of what just happened. Um, Who is like you, among the powerful, O Lord? Who is like you, powerful in the holy places, in the holy place, too awesome for praises, performing wonders? You inclined your right hand; the earth swallowed them up. With your loving kindness, you led the people you redeemed. You led, you led them with your might to your holy abode. Peoples heard, they trembled, a shudder seized the inhabitants of Philistia. That's the Philistines, Pelishtim. In other words, the point here is that it made it made the news. Everyone heard about the splitting of the sea and about the destruction of Egypt and the Egyptians. The chieftains of Edom were startled. As for the powerful men of Moab, trembling seized them, all the inhabitants of Canaan melted. May dread and fright fall upon them with the arm of your greatness. May they become as still as stone. When you have an enemy, it's good if they're not making any noise. Until your people cross over, O oh Lord, until this nation that you have acquired crosses over. This crossing over, of course, means crossing over into the, into the promised land, as I'm sure you can understand from this context. You shall bring them and plant them on the mount of your heritage. That's, of course, referring to Jerusalem, etc., Israel, directed towards your habitation, which you made, O Lord, the sanctuary, temple, O Lord, which your hands founded. This is a reference, of course, to ultimately. This is Moses. It's it's a prayer now. You shall bring them, right? You shall. This may may you, God, continue to bring them to Israel, build a temple, etc. The Lord will reign for all eternity. When Pharaoh's horses came, back to, the, back to the, recapping the story, when Pharaoh's horses came with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought the waters of the sea back upon them, and the children of Israel walked on dry land in the midst of the sea. In other words, all of this happened. The song happened when Pharaoh's horses came and his chariots, etc., the Jews walked through on dry land. So that, I think that's kind of summarizing, once again, in the context in which this, 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 uh, this song was sang. Now the Torah tells us what I told you a few moments ago, that Miriam led a song, the same song for the women. It doesn't repeat the song because we just read it. We just read the lyrics. Um, but the Torah tells us that, the, that Miriam sang with the women. Miriam, the prophetess. There you go. She was a prophet. I, I mean, we know that, but... If you ever want to know where in Torah does it say it, right here, black and white. Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, also Moses' sister, but just saying, took a timbrel in her hand. Timbrel is, I think, like a tambourine. Is that right? Am I right? Wrong? Yep. And all the women came out with, came out after her with timbrels and with dances. Look at this. The man just sang. Whatever, however they sang it. The women... They had instruments, and they had dances. Next level. And Miriam called out to them, the same, the same, he does the first line. Miriam called out to them, sing to the Lord, for very exalted is he, a horse and its rider he cast into the sea, dot, dot, dot. And then the rest of the song continues. Okay, that's the end of the song at the sea, and that would be, if you look in the the Torah reading, that is, that takes us right through here. Okay, all of that is, is this, this reading over here. Okay? Let's do some Rashis. Of course, this is very poetic. And when it comes to poetry, like every word of Torah is already, you know, replete, filled with, with meanings and messages. Let alone the songs. Shoo. For sure. So, um, let's take a look. Where am I? One second. Okay, so there's a grammatical issue here. The translation um, kind of uh, downplays the challenge, but there is a challenge that Rashi addresses, and I want to share it with you. It says, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song. So it's like the Torah is telling us what happened back then. The problem is, in the Hebrew, it says, Az Yashir Moshe, which most accurately is translated as, Then Moses will sing. Yashir is will sing, not sang. Translation is saying, but it really is a future tense. So that's why Rashi kind of dances around that. Um, Rashi dances around that, Um, giving a grammatical way out of that. But that's all the simple meaning that it was back in the day, the song that they sang at the sea. But the Midrashic interpretation is as follows. Listen to this. A rabbi is a blessed memory stated. From here is an allusion, it's a hint, from the Torah to the resurrection of the dead. In other words, the Torah is saying then, meaning when Mashiach comes, Moses and his generation will sing. How's Moses going to sing in the future when Mashiach comes? You know why? Because he's coming back. Resurrection of the dead. Are you with me on this? This is not a clear... We, I actually we cited this when we study the course, um, I think it was in the summer, the Resurrection of the Dead course. Um, This is based on the, the grammar of this opening line of the Song of the Sea, which is translated here as, then they sang, but most accurately is translated as, then Moses and the children of Israel will sing. How is that possible? They will sing in the future when Mashiach comes because Moses is coming back. Resurrection of the Dead. And everyone's coming back, but that's uh, that's the hint. Okay, that's one insight of Rashi. Um, it says, very exalted is God. Very exalted, ga ga'a. Twice exalted, exalted, exalted. So Rashi says, the doubling of the verb comes to say that he did something impossible for a human being to do. When he fights with his fellow and overwhelms him, when a human fights with someone else, he throws him off the horse. But here, a horse and its rider he casts into the sea, with the rider still on the horse. See, usually in battle, you attack the the rider, and then the horse does its own thing. But Hashem gets the horse and the rider at the same time. So, truly exalted is God. That's the... uh, that's the thing. I like this other explanation at the end of the Rashi, which says that means that he is exalted beyond all songs, which means for, who, for however I will praise him, he still has more praise. This is unlike the manner of a human king who is praised for something he does not possess. In other words, you can praise a human king, but at the end of the day, it's kind of, at some point, it's going to be flattery and, and, and not real Praise, But with God, as much as we praise, we're not really praising enough because God deserves more praise than is humanly possible to praise. Okay. A horse and its rider, as we quoted before, Rashi clarifies again, both bound to one another. The water lifted them up high and brought them into the depths, and still they did not separate. They drowned with their horses, riding their horses still. I'm going to look, I'm going to skip around a little bit just to find another Rashi too This is grammatical. Um, right. Yeah.
2: I, I have an, an interesting take on this too. Um, sure. For, uh, this is from, uh, it says, Minchas, Yehuda, what is that? Sefse chachami, chachami, yeah. What is that? It's a it says, Yeah, it says the verb Yashir is in the future tense, although it clearly refers to an event in the past. Rashi explains that future tense is related to a past occurrence, the time that Moses first considered singing. Rashi's interpretation also explains why the verb yashir is singular, although the subject, Moses and the children of Israel, is plural. For it was only Moses who first had the idea to respond to the miracle through a song.
0: Got it. Nice. That's the simple explanation. The deeper explanation, yeah.
2: And then it also on and talks
0: about yeah, the resurrection. Yeah, yeah, the
2: resurrection. Yeah.
0: All right, this is what I quoted before when the Jews said, this is my God who revealed himself in his glory to them and they pointed at him with their finger. Like when you say this, this means you can, you can almost see it. You can point to it. By the sea, and this is what I quoted before, even a maidservant perceived what prophets did not perceive. It was so obvious. The revelation was so obvious. Um... So even in the Medrash, this is the Mechilta, which is a Medrash, talks about divine revelation. What I shared with you before, what I said was from the Alter Rebbe, from Torah is the idea that sea represents hidden reality, land represents um, revealed reality, and the sea split, meaning that the hidden became revealed. That insight, that twist about sea and land, that comes from the the mystical tradition. Okay. Okay. Okay, the Lord is his name. What does that mean? His wars are not waged with weapons, but he wages battle with his name. As David said to Goliath, you come to me with spear and javelin, and I come to you with the name of the Lord of hosts.
1: Yep. Rabbi? Yep. So, again, getting to that, you know, the mystical source. So was that... So the Re- al came up with this... Concept
0: on his own. He didn't have any. No, 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 no. It's based on it's based on um, Kabbalah. On Kabbalah. Okay. Yeah, it's based on Kabbalah, um, and then he formulates it in a way that's uh, that works with the with with the insights in the Torah, in, into the Torah reading. Okay. Kabbalah speaks of hidden realms and reveal realms, and he kind of you know plugs it into the story. Um, okay. Looking over here. Here we go. They sank. They sank into the sea. This informs us, says Rashi, that the sea became mud to recompense, to pay them back according to their behavior. Remember I said, "Mida measure for measure. Namely, that they enslaved the Israelites with work that entailed clay and bricks. Basically mud. The Jews dealt with the mud. The Egyptians got punished ultimately with sinking into the mud, into the water and then into the mud. Um. Okay. Here we go. They sink like lead. So elsewhere, Rashi says, it says it devoured them like straw. So was it like lead or straw? Which one? So Rashi explains, the most wicked, the really bad guys were treated like straw, constantly tossed in the water, rising and falling, as we said before. The average ones, like the stone, which was more sinking. And the best... Like lead, they sank immediately and thus were spared suffering. So Rashi says there are three levels. The really bad Egyptians, they got uh, a bit tossed around. The not so bad, they sank like a stone relatively quickly. The good ones, or the better ones, like lead, a a quick end. Maybe this addresses our conversation before. Rashi clarifies three different levels, which means that there were some who had a painless death. Fine. Um, See, that's why it's good to study Rashi. Always good. Um, Okay. Let's continue. All right, let's let's see. I'm looking quickly. I'm just scanning it to see if we have a nice insight. Okay, congealed. What's the congealed? The water was congealed. Um, The depths hardened and became like stones. And the water hurled the Egyptians against the stones with all its might and fought with them, the Egyptians, with all kinds of harshness. Look at that. So it seems like there were also like parts of the sea that became, the water became actually congealed and hard. And that added to the turbulence, if you will, and to the... uh, to the, to the pain of that method of demise um, okay uh, all right yes
2: uh, please forgive me if you already said this I was taking some notes I might have missed you saying it uh, yeah yeah Raji says in um, Jeremiah sank the mud the youth, uh, that, uh, it says teaches that the sea became mud so as to repay the Egyptians in accordance with their behavior yeah for they enslaved Israel with labor that evolved clay and bricks, and they were punished with mud and uh, wet clay.
0: Yeah, yeah, we did that.
2: You did. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. No worries. Okay. We'll no worries. It's, sorry.
0: It's it's always always good to review, right? Um, okay, let's see. Um, I will draw my sword, literally I will empty my sword, I will draw because one empties the sheath by drawing it, it means empty, an expression of emptying is appropriate. So I will draw my sword, meaning I will empty the sheath of my sword by drawing it out. Um okay, okay, okay. Lead. Plum in French. Is it still a word that's used? Plum. Plum. plumb, Who knows? Okay, um, ch- yeah, it's got some, uh, that's a modern French version to this.
1: Plon, it's the same. What, what does it say in English? Lead. Lead? Lead, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Like the material. Yeah. Yes. Cool. So It's the same. Plon. There you go. Rashi knew what he was talking about. Um, okay. So here we go. You inclined your right hand. So when God inclines his hand, the wicked perish and fall because all are placed in his hand, and they fall when he inclines it. It's not literally. It's not like God is actually holding it, but it's like a metaphor. Similarly, Scripture says, And the Lord shall turn his hand, and the helper shall stumble, and the helper shall fall. This can be compared to glass vessels placed in a person's hand. If he inclines his hand a little, they fall and break. I picture kind of like a waiter holding a platter of glass you ask for the time right don't check the watch while holding (laughs) stuff next um all right yes
2: this is interesting about, about about like lead this is old french plum
1: this is modern
2: french plum the related english word plum means a lead weight tied to a line used to determine whether a wall is vertical would to measure the depth of a body of water. Nice. A plumber was originally one who worked with lead pipes. The Yiddish word plum, the describes the seal which was used to, uh, to which, which used to be made of lead attached to kosher meat. Right. With attest hospice.
0: Yes. That's excellent. That's excellent. They still have that. If you ever get, some, sometimes you can see kosher meat or chicken, it's got like a little bit of a seal on it, the right. physical like little metal thing on it. That's what that's referring to. Uh, the plumber, That's, uh all comes, from, all comes from lead. Look at that. Who knew that plumber in English, you call it plumber. Why is it plumber? Because they deal with lead pipes back in the day. I don't think lead is good anymore, right? We figured out that lead is no. deadly. Do not have no. lead pipes. Lead pipes yeah, exactly. are poisonous, yeah. But anyway, they're still called plumbers, though. You would think, change yeah. the name, but whatever. Um, okay. Here we go. The chieftains of Edom. We're going to just do another, let's, okay, it's a little bit late. Let's do another two minutes and then we're going to end it. So the chieftains of Edom, were, they were all feared. They were all afraid. Now Rashi says, they had nothing to fear at all because the Israelites were not advancing upon them. Rather, they trembled because of grief. They were grieving and suffering because of the glory of Israel. In other words, they weren't actually afraid that Jews were going to attack them because they weren't, that wasn't on the, on the radar. Why were they upset? They were upset that the Jews just had a good day. They were upset that good things were happening to the Jewish people. That's the true sign of an enemy. When you you, uh, succeed, they're upset. Okay, may dread fall upon them, upon the distant ones and the nearby ones. Dread and fright. Dread is distant. Fright is nearby. Um, Moses' prophecy. Oh, look at this. Look at this. Moses said to God, you shall bring them and plant them on the mount of your heritage. That means bring them to Israel. Moses prophesied that he would not enter the land of Israel. Therefore, it does not say, you shall bring us. It says, you shall bring them. You, God, will bring them, not us. Meaning that Moses, almost without knowing, I don't think he was consciously aware of this, but he was just speaking and what the words that came out is, God, may you take them to the promised land, indicating or foreshadowing the fact that he was not going to go. Although, yeah, that's what he says. Although the decree of the spies had not yet been pronounced, Moses prophesied not knowing what he was prophesying. Um, okay. Okay, Miriam, here we go. When did she prophesy? Miriam was the prophetess. When, when, when was she engaged in prophecy? Rashi says when she was known only as Aaron's sister. Oh, this is so Beautiful. Rashi, we love you, man. This is amazing. Rashi explains why she was called the prophetess and Aaron's sister because her main highlight of prophecy happened before Moses was born when she was only Aaron's sister. And what was the prophecy? She said, my mother is destined to bear a son who will save Israel. She, Miriam, the sister, prophesied about the birth of Moses being the savior of the Jewish people. So that's why she's called the prophetess. And that's why she's also called Aaron's sister because Moses hadn't yet been born. Anyway, okay, I love that. Look at this. timbrels and dances, Rashi says. The righteous women of that generation were so certain that the Holy One Blessed Be would perform miracles for them, they took timbrels out of Egypt. They were so sure that they would have what to dance to that they took their musical instruments out. The guys, who knows? Who knows what they took? The women... The Rebbe said this, emphasized this many times. The women are always, consi- sorry guys, <coughs> the women are always consistently more with amuna, more with faith and trust and belief. Anyway, we're just catch- we're catching up. We're-, we're making headway. I don't think we'll ever fully catch up, but we're, we're at least striving toward that. Um, and Miriam called after them. Moses said the song to the men, and they answered him. And Miriam said the song to the women, and they repeated it as well. Okay, that's it. Okay, you know what? I just realized.
1: Wait, Rabbi, I'm sorry. Yeah. The last 22, the Rashi? Yeah. uh, Moses didn't want, well, hastened the people so they wouldn't, I mean, the consequence was they couldn't pick up.
0: Yeah, we didn't didn't read, I didn't do Rashi because I realized we didn't read that inside yet, in the actual verse. So I realized that I had stopped after the song and left.
1: Because, you know,
0: whatever I see gemstones, you know. <laughs> right, right. So let's, let's read it quickly, and then we're going to close out. Moses led Israel away from the Red Sea. He, and that Rashi says he had to force them away from the sea because they were collecting all the gems. And they went out into the desert of Shur, and they walked for three days, but did not find water. In the desert, did not find water. They came to Marah, but they could not drink water from Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, like Marar. The people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord instructed him concerning a piece of wood which he cast into the water. And the water became sweet. We call this sweet water. There, joking. There he gave them a statute and an ordinance, and there he tested them. And God said, If you hearken to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is proper in his eyes, and you listen closely to his commandments and observe all his statutes, all the sicknesses, plagues, that I visit upon Egypt, I will not visit upon you. For I, the Lord, heal you. All right, that takes us to the end. I want to pick it up. Actually, we're going to pick it up next tomorrow from these verses, because there's a lot to speak about. But in short, the, uh, the gemstones on 22, let's just reference what Dana said, what Dina said very quickly, um, made them journey. He, he led them away against their will. For the Egyptians had adorned their steeds with ornaments of gold, silver, and precious stones, and the Israelites were finding them in the sea. The plunder at the sea was greater than the plunder in Egypt. They took more from the sea than they took when they left. As it says, we will make you rows of gold with studs of silver. Therefore, he had to lead them against their will. So the Jews, meanwhile, The Jews were collecting. They were collecting the wealth by the shore, all the stuff that had washed up from the deceased Egyptians. And was like, guys, we have to move. We have an appointment with God at Sinai. We got to move. Step away from the water and let's go. We got to go. So that's what happened. Tomorrow, I'm going to share with you the Rebbe's insight on this. The Rebbe asked the obvious question. How could it be that the Jews would be so consumed with material wealth that they would not want to go to Sinai? So the Rebbe gives an explanation, which we'll talk about tomorrow. Um, everyone have a great day. Oh, oh, very important announcement. Tonight's Torah studies, we're having an issue with the, with the heat at Chabad. If you notice the last few times we're at Chabad, it was a little bit cool. I think there's an HVAC issue. So we may be doing tonight's class online only, despite an email that went out this morning. It may be online only. Stay tuned for more information as the day proceeds. Look out for an email for tonight. Torah studies for sure is happening, please God but it may be online only. All right, we'll see you guys. Have a wonderful day. Take care. Bye, everybody.